This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A woman who came to Colorado from Mexico illegally 20 years ago is getting a lot of attention. Immigration officials denied her most recent attempt to stay, so Jeanette Vizguera went to the one place she thought she'd be safe, a church basement. In the last decade, churches around the country have re-emerged as sanctuaries for immigrants who hope, with a little more time, they can avoid deportation and find a legal way to stay in the U.S. David Poundstone is with the Metro Denver Sanctuary Coalition. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. And I want to talk about your personal religious motivations here in a moment. But first, legally, how can people here find refuge in churches. Why don't immigration agents come in and arrest Ms. Vizguera? Well, there's nothing really stopping them other than their own policy at this point and a certain amount of tradition and respect for uh, what churches represent. Um, so there's a policy that um, the um, Obama administration uh, instituted that probably goes back farther than that called the sensitive locations policy. And um, they can change that policy. We're wondering if it will. Yeah, no word of that yet, though. No, no. Mm-hmm. The sensitive location policy, can you say a, a bit more about that? Are there criteria that a church has to meet to to fall under that? Or? I, think, I think the sensitive locations are just a listing of like churches, hospitals, schools that are, um, you know, public um, and they just don't want to I mean, they would obviously risk very bad publicity to do something. Right. And so you say tradition is, is part of this. But ha- has this been tested in court at this point? Um, no, I don't, I don't think so. The tradition part goes back to the Middle Ages when, or even longer, <clears throat> when churches offered uh, you know, sanctuary to people who were fleeing the state or in, in some fashion and giving them a respite. So that's the the uh, you know the where the term comes from i think it's important to note that you are careful to not use the word hiding someone in a church uh that is as i understand it actually to comply with federal law it's no secret that miss vizguera is in this church in denver not at all it's no secret at all we've uh, been very public uh she announced her entrance into uh, the First Unitarian Church, uh, as soon as she was told her um, stay was denied. And that was in part to comply with federal law as you see it, and because I, I think it's clear you want to make a political point here. Is that fair to say? That's very fair to say. We're not in this for political motives per se. We're here to hold up a stop sign to our government saying this is not a value that uh, our government uh, – our our values need to dictate what our politics are. We do not want to separate families and um, so um, that's that's why we're doing this. It is inherently political though, isn't it? Naturally? Well, it, I mean, we are operating in the political environment, and we do call on our government, on our Congress, to actually change these laws. Uh, there, but our point is, is that there's no way that we're going to uh, accomplish whatever the problem is with immigration. And I'm, I'm not here to talk about what the uh, uh, people who say immigration is a is uh, some significant major problem. I'm not here to say that. Um, 
what that political solution is other than it cannot be solved on the backs of mothers and children. So we heard a lot about Ms. Vizguera, who went into sanctuary at the first Unitarian Church in Denver last week. And uh, she gave a press conference in Spanish with an interpreter. Es un día muy difícil porque fueron ocho años, ocho largos años, que he luchado muy fuerte por mantenerme con mi familia. These have been eight very long years of struggle to stay with my family. Pero son 20 años trabajando muy fuerte para mi comunidad. But I have been working for my community for more than 20 years now. There's one other woman in sanctuary in Colorado, a Peruvian citizen, Ingrid Encalada Latore, has lived at the Quaker Mountain View Friends Meeting in Denver since November. I think you're a member of that con- congregation. Yeah. Can you tell me just a bit more about her? Um, yes, um, I am a member of that congregation, and we accepted her into sanctuary at the end of November. Um, and she uh, is the mother of two citizen children, Anibal, who's just turned a year old when he came to us, and he's learned to walk in our church, uh, and Bryant, who's eight years old. And uh, she's been fighting her case now for several years, and we want to see her have a chance to, um, you know, get a hearing in court about that. But mainly, we uh, she's been in this country almost half her life, and her uh, to take her away from her children would be a great hardship to her and her family and our community. What are their lives like day to day in a church? Where do they sleep? Can you paint us a little bit of a picture? Yes, our our church building is an old, um, um, well, I think at one time it was a sorority house on the, near DU, and uh, we had an apartment uh, in the front of upstairs of our uh, building. We used to have a resident years ago, so we turned that over to Ingrid for, as her apartment, uh, and uh, we have a kitchen downstairs in, on, on the main floor and a nursery in the basement that has lots of toys. And it's great fun for the kids. And so they have the run of the of the building uh, when they're uh, during the day and people come to visit. And we usually have somebody come to spend the night just for security. Let me say that Ingrid was uh, caught using fake papers. She has paid $12,000, I think, in back taxes is there um, an immigrant you would not take in because of their background, because of their criminal history, for instance? Um, well, that's a very good question, and it has caused us some uh, concerns. I mean, what are we trying to do with sanctuary? Um, it, we, you know, uh, would like to deflect the concerns about um, uh, criminals to violent people who are a threat to society, but this is essentially a white paper crime. It should not have even been classified as a felony. And, um, you know, she's paid her dues. And if she were a citizen, it would all be over with. So do you think that violence is where you would draw the line? Probably. That that's Uh, where the background would be? That or, you know, know, just something that would uh, harm the, you know, physical safety of our community. But we... Uh, you know, we just had a pause th- during the summer when, and our, we were challenged by our the immigrant members of our coalition to say, you know, not everybody's perfect, and uh, it made me realize that, um, you know, the the badge of citizenship is provides the rest of us a great protection once you've paid your price. 
I do want to say that your openness in offering shelter distinguishes this, quote, new sanctuary movement from a similar movement in the 1980s. Back then, mostly people from Central America were shuttled from one congregation to the next across the U.S., and it was really more secretive. It's been called an underground railroad. Uh, And this tradition of churches as sanctuaries, as you've said, goes back even before that. Uh, But what do you say to the person listening who says, Listen, fundamentally, this person is in the country illegally. This is not the right fight. This is not where to place an investment. Um, well, this person, uh, you know, I tend not to use the word illegal. I think they're here without permission. We can change the law and give this person a piece of paper anytime we want. And if we were to fund... Um, you know, our um, citizenship process to the same level that uh, we would uh, law enforcement side, we could probably clean up a lot of pending applications for people. And if we, you know, followed the the discretionary policies that Obama finally came around to, you know, we could, um, you know, uh, use a much more sane, you know, enforcement policy. So, um, uh, yes, we have, you know, the The problems with immigration uh, go back, you know, a century or more in terms of, you know, what our country did in, in, you know, helping stimulate the, the, you know, dislocation of people in Mexico and why they would come here. And, you know, immigration is a natural phenomenon. So uh, why do you feel personally compelled to to be involved in this? um, Well, there's... um, you know many things, but I would go. I would go to the day that I first met Jeanette Viscara, when we would launch the Sanctuary Coalition. I had never met her in person at that point, but she had uh, was at the day we launched on the first on the steps of the first Unitarian Church, and we watched her and her children and other mothers and their children on the steps and. I was holding a sign that said, keep families together. And I said, you know, this is the most obvious thing in the world. You know, there is no good that comes from uh, separating uh, families. The nine congregations in this sanctuary movement here are in Denver and Boulder. They are generally more liberal-minded denominations, like Unitarian Universalist or Quaker meeting groups. Uh, We spoke with Jennifer Piper, who leads this Metro Denver Sanctuary Coalition, And she said that since the election, she has heard from lots of different faith communities across the state who are considering becoming sanctuaries. Uh, Most of the interest, she says, has come from evangelical churches, Catholic churches, mainline Protestants. Have churches in your coalition, though, faced any backlash from people who want to see deportations move ahead? Have you, for instance, lost any members of a congregation who don't agree with the idea of helping um i'm <clears throat> i'm not aware of any member any of our members in the mountain view that have uh disagree with this i mean that's the way we come to to do these things we arrive in unity and and we had a long tradition going back to the 80s sanctuary movement in our meeting uh, i know the unitarian church went through a several month discernment process to come to a corporate resolution. And, uh, you know, we all are coming out of various traditions and and, uh, other uh, churches. I I would 
would come, you know, the one of the most frequent themes in the in the the scriptures that we all share is taking care of the foreigner or the sojourner in our midst that uh, this is you know a mandate that um, must be close to God's heart, you know. So and I want to emphasize that this newer movement started before the Trump administration and really grew under the Obama administration because it deported a record number of people. Your group here in Denver started in 2014, just to reemphasize that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are about 200,000 undocumented immigrants in Colorado, according to the Pew Research Center. And given what we've heard from the Trump administration, I'm surprised only two people have sought sanctuary at this point in Metro Denver. Uh, why do you think more people aren't taking this step right now? Well, it's not easy for one thing. Um, it's um, uh, we. I mean, we, this correct the record a little bit. We had somebody in sanctuary for nine months, starting in twenty fourteen. Yes, that's right. And um, uh, and we've have other people in that we are accompanying, and we're actually actively working to you know, get closer to the pipeline of, of people and working to help them uh, accompany them on fighting their cases. But I see. So we're, we're likely to see more examples of this, you think? Oh, there are many people who might, but it is a very difficult decision for uh, the immigrant to decide to do this because, it, uh, you know, they're putting a lot on the line. There is no guarantee. You know, we're doing the best we can, but, you know, we can't guarantee how this comes out other than that we have committed ourselves to protecting uh, the person who comes to us and asks for sanctuary. It's just very briefly, the gentleman you made reference to who had been in sanctuary earlier uh, was a man named Arturo Hernandez Garcia. He was living at First Unitarian for nine months, basically until ICE decided he wasn't a priority for deportation. Finally, yes. David, thank you for being with us. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. David Poundstone is with the Metro Denver Sanctuary Coalition, a group of nine religious organizations that have said they're willing to provide sanctuary for immigrants who get deportation orders. Coming up, a man who helped shape Denver and spur its growth looks back on a long career. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Coming out of the recession, there's arguably no better place to find a job than Colorado. And when big businesses like BP or Aero Electronics relocate here, it grabs headlines, rightfully so. But it's the smaller, unheralded startups that drive much of the state's job growth. CPR's Ben Marcus reports on why entrepreneurs choose Colorado. Not far from City Park in Denver is an old brick mansion in a quiet neighborhood. It's now a workspace for a bunch of different businesses. Jacob Zacks runs one of them, tucked away in a small but cozy back room. He's proud to show off his new app, which teaches novices to compose music. And now we're going to add the bass. Music. Bass usually plays a simple part with lots of short notes. Make your own bass part by filling in these boxes with short notes. Zax is the co-founder and CEO of Edify, and he's no outlier. One in every three businesses in Colorado is now a startup, no more than five years old. But a tech startup in Denver? The 
Bay Area might seem more likely. The Bay Area is an amazing place for entrepreneurs. But when you talk about young entrepreneurs or people that are just starting, it's a balance of factors. In fact, Colorado now ranks tops in the country for young entrepreneurs for many of the reasons that Zach's lists off. Educated workers, access to capital, great mentors, an international airport. It also doesn't have horrid rent prices and (laughs) the traffic is doable and you can go outdoors and not spend all day in a windowless office that you're paying 3000 bucks a month for. Colorado may not be cheap, but it's a heck of a lot cheaper than California, where office and home costs can be twice as expensive. Zach says that's critical to young firms run by young people, where every dollar is precious. And that directly trade off with you know, the amount of time you have to become successful. And if you do become successful, the amount of ownership that you have over your business, because you're going to need to raise more capital to fund those expenses. Okay, so cost is obviously a big factor in why entrepreneurs are moving here. But I'm going to give you a second reason that um, I think is compelling. Kelly Bruff runs the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce. And I think we're one of the few regions in the country, maybe in the world, who have figured out the distinction between when you compete and when you collaborate. That appears to be especially true in technology, where more established business people here provide a lot of mentorship to younger firms, the kind of face time you can't necessarily get in the Silicon Valley, giving Colorado a clear edge in a critical industry. Technology saved Colorado, and it allowed Denver to start to compete at an international level that without it, we never could have. In the 80s, oil and gas companies dominated Denver, subjecting the city and the state to the boom-bust cycle of energy. But 30 years later, the region has become one of the most diverse economies in the country. A somewhat surprising turn of events to long-timers like Richard Wabakin, a dean at CU Boulder's Leeds School of Business. He moved here in the late 70s. Quite frankly, when I told my brother I was moving here, he said, you're moving to a cow town. You know, I hope you realize that, you know, it's beautiful, but you're moving to a cow town. Since then, there's been tremendous investment in the region. DIA, downtown sports arenas, light rail, the kinds of things that attract businesses of all types. Wabakin says add to that sunshine and especially the mountains. And it's no wonder the entrepreneurs are choosing Colorado. And so you have people that love to climb mountains and do crazy things and take on risk and Risk is an, risk-taking is an important part of an entrepreneurial spirit. So certainly uh, the, the climate uh, matches up with the entrepreneurial spirit. That describes guys like Jacob Zacks. He says Denver's draw is about way more than the cost of living and doing business. For me, it's being outdoors, you know, all year round, uh, whether that's to the mountains skiing, snowboarding, or I play ultimate frisbee uh, in the summer and uh, fall. He says there's a community and a culture built around an active, healthy lifestyle that Zach's believes would also help him attract talent if his business ever makes it big. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. So we just heard a bit about Denver's metamorphosis. Ben's story mentioned DIA, new stadiums. There's been a downtown renaissance. And let's not forget the brown cloud, which is no longer a constant presence, all contributing to a population boom. One man who played a big role in this transformation is Tom Clark, head of Metro Denver Economic Development Corporation. He retires next month after many years in this position. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. Great to be back. How was Metro Denver different when you moved to Colorado in the early 80s, I think it was? Well, uh, in those days, I I first started in Fort Collins. They had an unemployment rate of 2.9%, and they thought they were in a recession. Uh, But it was almost impossible to get a job anywhere here. Um, We were looking at 
a huge construction uh, boom right up to 1983. And then, of course, the Saudis decided to do something different about the price of oil, and our oil shale out in rifle and parachute disappeared overnight, and we went into a horrific recession. Many of those businesses represented with downtown office space in Denver, and you had vast buildings, high-rises downtown that were empty at that point. Yeah, 31% vacancy rate. Uh, Forbes had an article that said the Denver economy, you can't fall off the floor. Ah. And downtown took a real hit as a result, just in terms of its vitality and its livability, I think. Yeah, there there wasn't much uh, opportunity to meet even a, a beggar after 5 o'clock on a Friday night walking down the 16th Street Mall. Um, we were encased in the brown cloud at the same time, second most polluted city in the country, one of the least diverse metropolitan areas. It was pretty much paradise for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> he says that facetiously, folks. You can't see his face. Did you feel safe downtown? What, what did it feel like to walk around downtown? Well, it was... There was a feeling that it was safe down there because there was nobody there. Oh. Uh, it was just such bereft of humans. Um, and we uh, we bought a building in lower downtown, the chamber did, and uh, uh, we were f- fearful for our female employees. We used to take them down the elevator every Friday night and take them to their cars in the basement where the uh, garage was. But for the guys, it was just pretty much nothing. When did things start to turn around? That's a good question. Uh, I think for us, um, the decision was probably made to to build DIA, but the front end of that was really kind of Robert Redford. Robert Redford. Uh, yes, um, we were past past we were past the issue of uh, voting to build an airport, and we were kind of getting our feet under us. We had built convention center working on DIA, but but the brown cloud was just killing us, you know. You, companies wouldn't come, and uh, I believe it was uh, 1992, Redford shows up in town with his first ever air quality conference, and all the national media's jamming microphones in front of him saying, why are you coming to the second most polluted city in the country? And he said, I'm coming here because this is the only metropolitan area that gives a damn about the quality of its air quality, and I'm here to support it. And it's hard to believe that by 1995, we were pretty much off all the EPA watch lists. What was that a function of changing? Uh, Two things. Uh, To find out what caused the brown cloud, that was particulate matter. It was not from uh, coal-fired electrical plants. People thought it was. Uh, It was actually the fact that we didn't put salt on the roads. We put gravel, and the more you drove over that gravel, you eventually sent those particulates airborne. As a way to deal with ice and snow? Yes. Gravel? Yeah, because we have all that sunshine. You don't need salt to melt it. But the carbon monoxide was the big issue. That was the that was the bad stuff. In the early 70s, we had over 150 days of killia air in Denver. And uh, that we created the Metropolitan Air Quality Commission. And, and we knew if we could get the economy moving, people would be able to buy better cars, and better cars would reduce air pollution. And that's exactly what happened. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Tom Clark, longtime head of the Metro Denver Economic Development Corporation. He retires next month. A recent Denver Post editorial said this of you. Clark has served as a key player in almost every major business relocation and expansion you could think of, and some you've probably forgotten, uh, from helping Denver outgrow its resilience on the oil and gas industry that left the area subject to boom-bust cycles 
He's helped guide construction of Denver International Airport, you've mentioned that, and the venues that showcase the Colorado Rockies, the Denver Broncos. What is one critical project you took part in that we have perhaps forgotten? I mean, I think it's easy to point to something big and shiny like DIA or a stadium. But can you think of one that was smaller and yet really pivotal? I would say it was the convention center. Uh, if you if you want to get an idea how badly we were doing uh, planning and putting where we put our public facilities, go down to the corner of Bannock and Spear and look into downtown. That's where we were going to put the convention center in the early in the uh, mid nineteen eighties. Instead, we were smart enough to ask the Urban Land Institute to come in and say, "Is this really a good idea?" <laughs> and the answer was, they said, "Not only no, but hell no, put that." convention center into downtown. Well, of course, we went... Versus the outskirts. Versus the outskirts. And so David French, a developer, put together the land and we built it there. And now it's been, uh, it's getting ready for its third expansion. And when that started to bring business tourists into town, the view of downtowns began to change, but it was catalyzed by Coors Field. I see. So Colorado Convention Center is something of an anchor and then others... Uh, sprung up as a result. So would you say that the metro area is no longer at risk of a bust cycle? Well, in 1985, uh, when I came to town, my goal with my partners throughout the region was to become the most diverse metropolitan economy in the country. And what did diverse mean to you? Well, the most diverse economy in in the world is the United States economy. So if you take your economy and kind of put pie charts on to see if you've got a kind of the same percentage of employment in certain different uh, industries gives you an idea if you're how close you are. We reached that uh, in the uh, somewhere around 2014, 2015. And what that means is that it's going to be pretty hard to get into a bust economy. We're not a resource-based economy like gold and silver in the old days and oil Mm. and gas in the 80s. So I would say that option is pretty much gone and that's a good that's good news for all of us. Uh, as you were listening to Ben Marcus's report, you cited a really fascinating statistic that I'd like you to share with the audience about job growth and where it comes from in Metro Denver. Will, will you share that? Well, if you think of the Great Recession, and we had two of them. We had the dot-bomb recession of 2000, and then that was followed by the Great Recession. During that 10-year period, 2000 to 2010, net employment gain by companies was zero. By companies already here. Right. But if you looked at job growth during that decade, we added 130,000 jobs. So how does that happen? These are all single proprietors, as we call them, or entrepreneurs. Some of them people who lost their job and said, I'm not leaving. I love this place. I'm going to find a way to make a living here. But also this impulsive group that we're seeing lots of these days, these are people who want to build a company here and live and grow that company here. Which underscores this idea that though there are a lot of headlines when a big company relocates in Colorado or one already here does big hiring, it is often these smaller entrepreneurs that don't grab headlines that really are the engine of job growth, at least in that period, 2000 to 2010. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Ones and twosies. You've been celebrated for not hogging projects, but supporting economic development efforts in areas other than Denver itself. And, you know, you've been celebrated for your ability to collaborate. Can, can you give me an example of an effort where being able to collaborate made a contentious project actually happen? 
Well, I think the very beginning of, of our collaboration as a region was the biggest challenge. Uh, we were a bunch of communities at war with one another. Economic development was defined by stealing companies from one city to another, mm. which in an economic world is like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Uh, the idea of that we could put, at that time, about 34 cities and six counties in a room together to think about a bigger tent, a really big tent, uh, realizing that good ideas come from anywhere, and then ultimately saying, if we do this together, things will move along a lot faster. That's very difficult in a political world, but in a customs-based economy, which are customs-based uh enterprise like we have today customs-based yeah it's 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 the sense of not being legal it it's the sense in your guts that am i doing something to hurt my neighbor Hmm. and and so we operate under a code of ethics that was that has been around since 1987 and that tells us what we can and can't do as economic development people in the region uh, and that kind of poaching thing is that's a no no. Oh, oh, beyond no no. Uh-huh. Uh, you you can get kicked out of the family uh, if, you, <laughs> if you do that. What worries you when you think of Metro Denver's future? Well, I have two things, I guess. Number one, uh, we've been doing regional economic development around the uh, around this enterprise for since 1986. The folks who put that together are getting older. As a matter of fact, I'm probably the last one standing who's been there from that very beginning. Do you worry about continuity? I do. And and you look at communities that over time look back and say, oh, gee, why can't we be like those people who did it way back then? I think this generation of Denverites and Metro Denverites along the Front Range all the way to Larimer and Weld are probably the greatest civic generation that ever existed here. Uh, I want the next generation to be the greatest generation ever. And I want the generation after that to be the greatest generation. And that's building people who know how to collaborate and to lead in collaborative ways. The second thing I worry about is the conversation that's going on in in the country right now troubles me. It's very much divisive. And when you're delivering services to companies coming in or growing in your community and making sure that everybody gets their piece the conversation has to be a lot lighter than what we're seeing in the national news right now. Well, and it's interesting because this this group of counties and governments that uh, you helped uh, bring together are very politically diverse. I mean, you've got more conservative, you've got more independent, you've got more liberal-leaning ones in there. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Tom Clark is CEO, for now, of the Metro Denver Economic Development Corporation. He also serves on the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce and has played a major role in economic expansion here over the past 30 years. He'll retire March 31st. Still to come, a new opera with a transgender main character played by two singers. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Opera Colorado's upcoming production breaks a lot of rules in the opera world. There is just one character on stage, a young transgender woman named Hannah. Hannah's 
part is sung by two people, a female mezzo-soprano and a male baritone. Their voices intertwine in a scene where Hannah realizes there are other people like her in the world. The chamber opera called As One has also found uncommon success since its debut in 2014, and this is the first time it comes to Denver. One of its creators is here. Pulitzer Prize winner Mark Campbell has written the libretto to more than a dozen operas. He's a graduate of the theater program at the University of Colorado Boulder. And Mark, welcome to the program. Thank you. What made you want to work on As One? <laughs> um, I, it, this project actually started with the composer Laura Kaminsky and uh, she approached me to write the libretto she had uh, lined up the singers to perform it she had lined up a string quartet had many ideas but she lacked a story uh, I met with her and uh, Kimberly Reed who is a f- mostly a filmmaker Kimberly had made a movie called Prodigal Sons which I urge everyone to see uh, the three of us met they did not have a story. They did not have a libretto. And I just turned to Kimberly and said, um, just tell me some of your early experiences as a transgender person. And um, she started by mentioning, by, by uh, discussing an anecdote. Uh, when she was 12 and she had a newspaper route, and one day she just decided to do it in a blouse. And I turned to Laura and I said, that is a song. This is what we live for. This is what we, we, we writers live to hear so that we can turn this into material. And um, I went home that night and started thinking, wow, we could write a whole opera based very loosely on Kimberly's own experiences. Um, and I asked Kimberly to co-write the libretto. And that's how the um, story was born. Uh, so we actually were able to speak with uh, composer Laura Kaminsky, and she says she got the idea for this opera after reading a news article herself and uh, that it just felt like it was a project she had to take on. I felt like this was a real story to be told, and just somehow it felt operatic. I'd never thought about writing an opera before, but this sort of really did come to me as a, I have to write this opera. As we said, two singers perform the part of Hannah, the main character. Was it tricky to write for one main character who speaks in two voices? Um, no, not at all. Um, because uh, I was working with Kimberly, and, and we collaborated so closely on the text. Uh, and we made a decision early on, first of all, that we wanted to create a real character, often uh, uh, Subjects like this turn into issue operas, and they're they're therefore not very interesting. Uh, we wanted to create a real person, and somehow we just clicked on this story of Hannah. Um, we also knew that we wanted to write an opera that had a great deal of humor in it. We wanted everyone to understand this person. Um, that was one of our earliest decisions. Another is that we would write text, but we would not assign 
certain lines to what would typically be a male response to something or typically be a female response to something. We found a way of blending both of these voices together. And Laura also, as she started setting the text, um, joined in in that discussion, and it became very fluid. I love a moment in this opera. Um, Hannah has a kind of epiphany. Um, she's looking up the word transgender at the library, and she thumbs through words like transatlantic and Transylvania. <laughs> you know, she's nearing it in the card catalog. When the coast is clear, I creep to the card catalog. Thumb through the cards, my hands trembling. Transatlantic travel. This is such a big step for the character to even look up the word. How did that come together, that part of the libretto? Oh, gosh. Um, it's very interesting. I wrote a draft of that song to know. And I, I, um, Kim, the, the, Kim grew up in Helena, Montana, and the library there is actually called the Lewis and Clark Library. And that was a detail that I loved because it's named after explorers. Um, I wrote a draft of that, and then Kim and I just went back and forth and changed it. I just I, – I, I put my – I mean, I, I guess channeled Hannah at that moment. But I would say that Kim also spoke to me and said, you know, you're a gay man. You must remember that first time when you realized that you were not the only person in the universe who is gay. Uh, and – when she directed me in that way, it was very easy to write this moment. I understood Hannah completely. Mm. And, and let me just say, once again, Kimberly Reed, your co-librettist, uh, is trans. And mm -hmm. she also did visuals for this uh, chamber opera as one. Um, a transgender main character who thinks about her identity, you know, could be a, a touchy, intense issue to take on. How did you keep this story from feeling too heavy, though? I mean, how do you balance the struggle of being transgender with the beauty that life might hold? Oh, I love that question. Um, you just answered the question uh, because so many people concentrate on the torture and the, and, and the, the, the difficulty um, of realizing yourself. Uh, I don't even use the transition, uh, the word transition. It's, it's really self-realization. Um, it's, it's not that it's an easy thing, uh, but we wanted to present it as a not difficult thing. That really doesn't make sense, does it? I'm a writer. I can't find words. Um, <laughs> we wanted people to understand it on a universal level. Uh, one thing that we really love is that people come to this audience, audience members come to the show and say, well, gosh, I've had a journey that's not unlike Hannah's. Um, and we're very happy about that. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a universal story about a very specific person who goes through very specific things. Uh, if we had just created a political issue um, out of this opera, then it would have been really dull, and I think we would have turned off our audience. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is 
The Pulitzer Prize winner, Mark Campbell, he's written the libretto to more than a dozen operas, including As One, this chamber opera about uh, a transgender character, has found a lot of success uh, since its debut in 2014. This is its first time coming to Denver with Opera Colorado. I'll say that uh, Campbell is a graduate of the theater program at CU Boulder. Uh, Earlier, you made reference to a story that really was something of a hook for you in uh, being involved in this project. And it it had to do with a a paper route. Hannah is wearing a blouse while she rides her bike and delivers newspapers. The blouse I stole from a neighbor's clothesline It isn't much, but fits my 12-year-old frame So in case you missed any of that, she's 12 years old um, and tries on a blouse for the first time writing during the paper route. And the the great line there is the papers still get delivered, right? <laughs> no, no matter what Hannah is wearing. The world doesn't fall apart because someone chooses to um, realize their true gender. That's, mm. that's the message in, in the papers still get delivered. Uh, the official synopsis for the opera says Hannah revels in her more feminine impulses in this scene, I think. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, she uh, Often stories about transgender people involve fetishizing uh, clothing and uh, the outward accoutrement of, of, of drag. And um, Kim and I decided we wanted to touch on that a little bit and, and see that, well, this blouse does help her realize herself but it is not um the only thing there is a there is a lot more to of course realizing your true gender than what you wear uh, on your body the piece has been a hit it debuted in 2014 in brooklyn has been performed in about 10 productions already that's a huge number by the way for a new opera yeah, we're we're really thrilled about that. I mean, um, we just we the three of us were just in Pittsburgh this past weekend at Open at Opera Pittsburgh, and I have to say we're really looking forward to the Opera Colorado production. Um, Greg Carpenter, who runs Opera Colorado, and and everyone has been so welcoming and um, so devoted to to bringing this opera to life. Uh, and sadly, we'll only get to really be there for a few days, but we're very excited about coming to Colorado. Uh, Just a bit more about your background. One of your most recent operas was The Shining, an (laughs) an adaptation of the Stephen King story about that family in an isolated hotel. Uh, King wrote the novel after staying at the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park. And um, what, what made that horror story sound like it would work as an opera? The commission. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I'm joking. Um, when you read the novel, it's um, it's it's really very operatic. A lot of people's experience with The Shining um, is related to the movie, and I like the movie fine, but it is not the same story that Stephen King created in the novel. And um, we just the co- composer Paul Morvick and I, who have, is also a Pulitzer Prize winner, we um, just 
read that novel and said, this would make a great opera. Minnesota Opera produced it. It was the biggest hit they've ever had. And uh, we're hoping that we get to bring it to Colorado at some point, bring it home, I guess. Right. Is there something about the success of that opera being connected with, I don't know, what like more pop culture that you think is a recipe for success? Sure. It's always been a recipe for success in opera. The greatest operas were, were based on um, novels that were already known to the public. I mean, you know, people came to Traviata knowing the story. They just waited for the for Violetta to die and do it beautifully and hit all those notes. Um, it's it's nothing new to be adapting popular work into opera. I mean, as one is an original story, um, it's based loosely on Kim's experiences. But I would also say that we're using a popular vernacular in telling the story. Uh, we really want to reach our audience. Uh, and we're not going to do that with pretentious poetic text um, or, or archetypes. We want to create a real person that an audience can identify with. Again, Kim is Kimberly Reed, uh, who is yep. your co-librettist. You attended CU in the early 70s. Uh, were you hoping to... Oh, thanks. You, you gave away my age. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> were you hoping to write lyrics when you studied theater there? No, I actually – and also I went to high school at Thomas Jefferson High School. I was vice president of the drama club, which pretty much sounds like a euphemism at this point. Um, and I went from uh, Thomas Jefferson High School. I lived on East Eastman Avenue and uh, went to University of Colorado, first in Denver the first two years because I couldn't afford to go away to school. And then the last two years were in Boulder. Um, I graduated there with a degree in theater and dance. I was going to be an actor. Um, I did a bunch of theater in Denver, Bonfils Theater. I remember even being directed by uh, a wonderful director named Beverly Newcomb. Um, and I um, graduated from college, took a side trip to New Orleans, lived there for a while, um, and then ended up in New York and pretty quickly discovered that I did not want to be an actor. I wasn't good enough um, and not even close to being good enough. Um, a composer that I was dating at the time actually asked me to write lyrics um, for an, a musical that he was writing about the Romanoffs, a guy named Stephen Hoffman. Um, and I started writing musical theater lyrics. I loved it. I really loved it. But I have to say I wrote my first opera in 2002. A composer named John Musto asked me to write an opera. Um, and we wrote a great opera called Volpone for Wolftrap Opera in D.C. And I have been hooked ever since. Ever since. And indeed, you're writing the libretto now for an opera that will debut this summer about Steve Jobs, the mastermind behind Apple computers, to draw on yep, con yep. contemporary That debuts at Santa Fe in, um, uh, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, that debuts in Santa Fe in uh, July. Ah, Santa Fe Opera. Not far from us. A dry, a dry. No, drive sure. on down. That is librettist Mark Campbell. He's part of the creative team behind As One, Opera Colorado's production of that chamber opera plays March 2nd through 4th at Pinnacle Charter School. Details at CPRnews.org. More music now from As One. This is CPR News. CPR News.